Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore the gap in common understanding of digital culture, media, and technology. This is a space to discuss strategies for navigating our rapidly evolving digital environment. We're all here learning together. We host these conversations live every Wednesday night. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for Digital Void to be alerted to our live events or visit digitalvoid.media to register. How are issues of race and ethnicity inextricable from and formative of contemporary digital culture in the United States? How have digital media reconfigured the meanings and performances of African American identity? Dr. Andre Brock Jr. is the author of Distributed Blackness and an Associate Professor of Black Digital Studies at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Jamie Cohen is a digital media culture expert with a specific focus on YouTube, memes, emergent media, and digital media literacy. He founded the New Media Program at Malloy College. This conversation was recorded live on Wednesday, May 13th, 2020. A full archive of the original live stream is available to view now on our YouTube channel. So Dr. Brock, I want to talk to you about your book, which is fantastic. And I want to have a discussion about uh, the background and the framework that you've you've worked on with this project, as well as many of the things that I think our audience would love to hear about in terms of like what techno cultures are and digital cultures are. Mm -hmm. And just to introduce that subject to uh, a new, new type of audience that we would we would want your work to be read by and personally and I've not I've nonstop talked about your book for, since I've started reading it so I <laughs> I think it's important for everybody to to know what it is so first I would love to know some background about you so how did you how did you become a new media or digital culture scholar or technoculture scholar ah uh, that's a great question um, I encountered uh, uh, information technology studies uh, in the early two thousands right around the time that they were publishing reports about the digital divide. And as a Gen Xer, uh, I was really uh, taken aback by the ways that black communities were portrayed with respect to the digital divide. We were always seen as having deficits um, and that didn't really uh, line up with the, the, the experiences I had or even my own experiences uh, with people in my community who use technology. And so I began from that point trying to conceptualize and execute uh, racial slash cultural analysis of information technology use. And the book is the culmination of that work over the last 10 or 15 years. Yes, it's absolutely incredible. My, I, I, the reason I like your book, just to, to bring personal stories into it, is I was asked, I was recruited by a college to start a new media program. And mm -hmm. at the time, I, I, was, I didn't have my PhD yet. And I was very much like taking the internet as a very I didn't think culturally at all or critically about it in any way. I was thinking about it in much of the utopian ways that people thought about and like after Twitter and Facebook were made where they're like, this is going to make democracy better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, this is good because I could introduce new media studies to a, a, a population of students who may not have had access previously. So my, my school is very much um, a school where it's first generation students, a diverse population. And to, to give that access, I felt really good about. But there was always something eking inside of me that was about the, the, the digital cultures that existed that weren't just a specific one type of thing. And like, and you mentioned it, you call it a neutrality, the thought of neutrality inside of the internet. Mm -hmm. And it bothered me to think that that was even a, a thought that could happen. So 
it was it's exciting to know that scholars started working at that time. So was there a specific entry point for you? Did something happen that enlightened you towards like seeing how this stuff had to be written about in a scholarly form? Um, the very first article I published uh, was because I had started thinking through some of the conclusions of the Digital Divide articles. And the one that stuck with me, uh, uh, which is Hoffman and Novak from 1998, is that Black folk were not yet a part of the uh, information society uh, because there had not yet been enough information published by them, about them, and for them, right? And so I started looking. And there were small sites. There was everythingblack.com. Uh, there was Black Planet, which came into being around this time. There were small sites, but there were, weren't really any mainstream initiatives worth their weight, apart from MSBET, which we can talk about, um, uh, the Microsoft BET collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so my first article focused on a mainstream portal, Yahoo. Uh, at the time, Yahoo is huge. Like most people today don't understand how big a property Yahoo was at its heyday. And Yahoo had cultural sites. It had a U.S. site which you know, featured the usual American entertainers, but it also has specific language sites for Mexico and for Central America and for Brazil and for Japan and for Korea. And that gave me uh, the uh, understanding that we could talk about the internet in cultural ways, but our, our the impetus in the United States is try to flatten it so that it looks like a particular set of information users with a particular set of information needs. Yeah. It always seemed like, I guess the question would be better, a uh, question would be phrased as, why do you think that there was an elision? Why do you think uh, subcultures or digital cultures that weren't mainstream were elided from the history of the internet at that time? Why was that part of the original stories of when people started talking about internet culture in general? I mean, it just follows a line uh, that you can trace all the way back through uh, the beginnings of American history, where Amer uh, African-American inventors of uh, formerly enslaved people were not given credit for their technological innovations and inventions. They were instead credited to their owners or to white people who were in a position of patronage, right? Uh, because it was, it was assumed that we just didn't have the capacity to do so. And so the internet, unfortunately, fell under that same type of, of thinking, that same topoi, right, where anything that we did really wasn't productive or efficient in the ways that uh, the internet was conceived to be. And so instead, they focused exclusively almost on the Silicon Valley wonderkinder, uh, Gates and uh, uh, Wozniak and, you know, the, and the folk out there or the, the newly sprung up uh, vision of the hacker, mm -hmm. you know, following movies like The Matrix and Existence and The 13th Floor, right? All those 1999 movies. Postmodernism, uh, yeah. Strange, strange Things with Ralph Fiennes, right? It was a certain type of hacker that fit the description and black folk didn't fit in that, that thing either. So this elision is simultaneously a cultural one that America has always done, but it's also a technical one that America has also done as well, right? If you think about hidden figures, like these are women, women of color who had advanced degrees and were integral to the space program, but their contributions were erased. Strange. Mm -hmm. And so it's- it, it's, a, it's a perpetuated system that's been mm -hmm. built into it. You use the term, um, I use the term utility, but you use the word infrastructure for it. And uh, can you explain what you mean by the idea of infrastructure as, and then in terms of like how that is white, like the, the infrastructure of the internet. Um, so I've been using infrastructure for a while because 
even as I was writing this in the 2000s following the first dot-com bust, I saw how the internet was quickly becoming interwoven into almost everything certain classes of people had to do and certain other classes of people thought of themselves like. So we started really talking about the information society in the early 70s with Daniel Bell, but it really became something more closer to a reality with the uh, release of the Mosaic browser and the, the opening of the, the web, the, I'm sorry, the opening of the World Wide Web in 1996, right? Then you began to see everyday people coming on. So it was no longer just a business thing or a government thing or a university thing. All of a sudden, people could log on into their various wall gardens, whether it was CompuServe or AOL, but also begin to imprint themselves on the internet as well. Mm -hmm. And so at that point I argued, and maybe it was a little utopian, that it was becoming an infrastructure, something that underlay every part of our lives like street grids and uh, sewer lines that we really didn't notice until they broke, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I love your idea of utility. I think the utility was what the 1996 Telecommunications Act was trying to get the information uh, services rendered as, but the telecom companies and the cable companies have successfully fought that back to consider themselves as information providers, which do not have the same universal service requirements that a utility does. That's right. Yeah, I, I think my terminology would probably be more towards like uh, explaining to my students. I, I use it in terms that you explain as well, which is at a certain point, like if you didn't have electricity or plumbing, you would have been the weirdo, you know? Yeah. And then. At a certain point now, if you don't have social media, that would be it. So it's kind of like the norm that is just part of participating in the environment. Absolutely. And so I think your entry point is great. So before we get to the technocultures and cybercultures, one of the studies that I had done, my, my dissertation was on um, the history of virtual reality in the early early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And one of the parts that was one of the biggest things that stuck out to me was the cyber feminist cybercultures that existed at the time because people who worked on virtuality were very often a monoculture. It was a very white, very industrial type of work that really didn't encourage participation of people of color, black folk, or anybody who wasn't just the specific, tiny, very specific cultural group that was there. And what, as a result though, which was kind of nice, was a, a bit of a pushback from feminism that said, mm -hmm. you know, we have to think about the internet as all encompassing or, or an environment or something that's ecological and being in a space that was built by white people without the consideration of other people in mind meant that you were wearing or being just like the, re perpetuating a history, a history of yes. violence that basically says, here's how the, how the internet looks or re replicates a real life environment mm -hmm. and excludes others. So that exclusion became something that was interesting because the best type of scholarship then came from the idea that we have to rethink how we understand how internet is built. And so I, I wanna talk a bit about what is what is a techno culture? What does that mean to have a techno culture, a cyber culture? Um, so I'll get nerdy for a second. So sure, <laughs> uh, uh, I came to my understanding of it. I started with this guy named Joel Dienerstein, who has written a book called Swinging the Vine, which looks at African-Americans, jazz and modernity. But the article that I fell in love with where he, was he really kind of explicated this concept of, te of technoculture. And he says for America in particular, technology is the American mythos, the telos almost, right? So if you think of manifest destiny, manifest destiny was something that we talk about a little bit in schools, but we don't understand we always don't we don't fully explain the links between agricultural technologies, military technologies uh, and to a lesser extent, biological warfare. Right. And, and uh, allowing 
people of European descent to take over lands that were already occupied, already cultivated, and say, these are the lands that belong to us because we have a technical right by God to improve these places, mm -hmm. right? And so that technoculture is, uh, Dienerstein says there are six qualities to it, and there probably could be a couple more, but the ones he says are um, progress, religion, modernity, uh, whiteness, and masculinity, which I think are two really important ones, but also the future, right? And he, he I, I really appreciated that he put whiteness and masculinity in there. If you think about, the, again, going back to Silicon Valley and its cult of the innovator, right? It's still always men who are elevated as those types of stable geniuses. No, no shade. Uh, those type of stable geniuses who can lead us into these technological innovations. And part of it is that their whiteness and their masculinity allows them to suppress the demands of the spirit. If you think of the asceticism of uh, Steve Jobs or the nerdy uh, lack of masculinity that Bill Gates has, they, uh, they um, diminish their masculinity and their race in order to build an objective future for everybody powered by technologies which can solve our social ills. Mm -hmm. uh, and so technoculture is that, that mythos. Uh, I also call it uh, in the book, the culture of and the politics of technology to solve social problems, right? And I think uh, for those of us who are uh, deeply enmeshed in following uh, the medical and scientific uh, evaluations of the, the pandemic that we're currently experiencing, we can begin to see the contours of how uh, nation, nationhood, uh, racial, race and ethnicity and culture are shaping the American responses to the virus in such a way that we have now incurred the largest number of fatalities and the largest number of cases in the entire world because we insist on going upon an ideology as opposed to, uh, I'm sorry, an ideology of cultural belief as opposed to an ideology of medical uh, empiricism and findings. Well, that is extremely accurate and unfortunate. It's also to, to add to that is the, it, we get to see or we now lay bare what the extrapolation of an incident like Flint, Michigan is on a pandemic scale, on like a pandemic scale. When yeah. you see places in the South and rural regions where the, the death rate among people from coronavirus exponentially affects people of color and black folk, it's, it's absolutely part of the system that was already in place, that was part mm -hmm. of the way that it already was. And now we're just seeing it because when you scale anything, it makes visible what are those pieces. So it, it is interesting to see that the internet itself not only perpetuated previous like structures, but it is interesting to see that it tries its best to keep it going. Like it has almost like a desire to push back against any type of uh, interference or, or change or shift or, or enlightenment from seeing things from different perspectives. And mm. I think that's what the, what your text does really well from from a cultural uh, as a cultural studies person, seeing like at a, at a cultural studies standpoint of trying to reverse the idea, like seeing it from a non-Western point of view, just to have that that moment of clarity that kind of shows you, oh my gosh, these systems were built without others in mind. It was just simply built as a way of making it work. That was it, and it was like such an interesting concept that if it worked, they just stopped. They were like, we're good. So I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the historical artifacts that you use. Well, actually, before we get to that, I want to talk about your methodology because okay. it's fantastic. So you use a methodology called critical technocultural discourse analysis. And so you refer to the, the infrastructure as text. 
I think that's an interesting way of doing it because I like doing that through object studies, but object studies mm -hmm. already comes with baggage. Like, yeah. so to see that transference into text is really good because you can do a discourse analysis, not just based on text itself. You can refer to other types of objects. Right. How did you like deploy that framework? Like, how did you come up with that and use that and make that something that was such a strong piece of this? <laughs> Thank you. This is a great question though. Uh, so uh, I come out of a, a Carnegie Mellon, which had a strong rhetoric, uh, but also a strong linguistics and computational analysis of text. Uh, and so I was influenced by that, but particularly by uh, the work of Susan Herring, who has a technique she calls computer-mediated discourse analysis. So my original love is computer-mediated discourse because I've always understood that the computer does something to change the ways that we talk to one another and that you cannot discount those particular ways when you're understanding how people are relating. Uh, for my students, I talk about it as the like, right? What is a like? Like, is it the same thing mechanically as it is in your everyday life? You like pizza in your everyday life. Do you like random slices of pizza on the internet? No, you like specific brands. You like pictures of other pieces, of other people's pieces of pizza, right? You may even like a restaurant that serves pizza. And that mediation that the technology does is important to understand, right? So a like for a pizza brand on Twitter is not the same as a like for a pizza brand on Instagram or Facebook. They all serve different functions. So that, that meaning-making strategy that the, the computer uh, the interface in my particular case offers is worthy of analysis because it also determines power relations, That's right? right. Uh, and so critical discourse is the second part of that. Uh, and that making that first jump to saying you can read interfaces and uh, technical artifacts as text allows me to apply the same framework of critical discourse, both to the text that I'm interested in and the ways that people understand themselves with relationship to the text. So you asked me a great question earlier uh, about infrastructure. My argument uh, in the first time, the first uh, five or six years that I was doing this work is that race wasn't always visible online, particularly in mainstream spaces, until somebody ruptured the people's perceptions of who was participating in the conversation by saying, well, I'm black. And what you're describing doesn't work like that for me. It's, it was literally the equivalent of the record scratch in a sitcom. Right, it would bring all the conversations to a halt. One of my favorite articles uh, that I ever wrote was about a browser called Blackbird, and it was basically a Mozilla browser. Right, you know, at the time you can well, you can still customize Mozilla browsers. There was a Flock browser for women, which had pink interface elements. These black inventors came up with the uh, Mozilla version they called Blackbird, specifically catered for African American users. It had a, a, a targeted Google search that brought up a sanitized. Uh, search results, shout out to Sophia Noble, who talks about how uh, Google's algorithm will surface porn or other objectionable results if you just throw a relatively innocuous query such as black girls. The Blackbird browser anticipated that. But what was interesting was when uh, enthusiast sites like Ars Technica or TechCrunch or Gizmodo, you know, the big dogs of tech reviewing at the time, when they reviewed it, their commenters would say, oh, well, black people are just gonna use this to look to, for how to get out of weapons charges or for sale prices on 40 ounces, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> right, as if there were no other reasons that black folk would come online, right? And this is 2010, right? This is oh, not shit. 100 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, like, this is just 10 years ago. Yeah. And so, but it, up to that point, I found similar cases where white folk would assume that the only ways that black people would use it would be in ways that were not in line with what they thought technology should be used for. 
right? There was a rupture and black folk would step up and say, they would use their racial identity as a ground, a warrant for why they were using this technology or saying, I'm black and I don't do any of those things. I have a Cisco certification. I work at Twitter as an engineer. I don't do any of those things. So it's foolish that you would even fix your mouth to say something like that. Right? Mm. Uh, and so that critical discourse, that understanding of how people interpolate themselves or uh, see themselves as technology users with a cultural background has really been important to my work. And it also works in reverse. So looking at the website, Stuff White People Like, right, uh, which is a fascinating case study uh, because a guy who was a former PhD student in Bloomington, Indiana, right, you can't get more Midwestern land grant uh, liberal background than that, has this website, which later became a book, where he talks about various ways that he, he understands the world through his whiteness. And in the comments, many of these uh, entries are only like 160 of them. Many of the entries have comments in the thousands, right? And white people come in there and say, I'm not that kind of white person, right? And so it helps to understand that everyone brings their culture to their particular understandings of uh, themselves technically, but it often takes a moment where they're forced to reflect on how their race or gender or sexuality makes them perhaps different from the assumed norm that many designers and content providers and governmental entities assume come from the first place. Yeah, that's from a cultural st study standpoint, I think one of the lines that I took from the text is a, a very poignant moment. I didn't, again, this is the, the privilege of not thinking about it, is I didn't think about the idea that you write, there's no real gizmodo for black culture. There's no like written from an Ars Technica from that standpoint. So there's, mm -hmm. there's it wasn't ever built from that bottom-up structure like that. And you write a very interesting line that, that comes from this is techno-cultural belief that black folk lack the capacity for appropriate internet practices. Mm -hmm. And I thought the, the term appropriate was incredible because the idea of appropriate use on the internet is mind-blowing to me because the internet has no appropriate nature, but it has a structure that caused appropriate thoughts to be us like its structure itself so mm -hmm. it created the belief that there was an appropriate way of using the internet but the internet didn't come with rules yet the rules were embedded in it like mm -hmm. they were part of it so how do you how do you explain to somebody who doesn't see that difference where there's the structure itself creates a usage policy mm -hmm. that you can't tell unless you're breaking those usage policy rules so i will say a polite fiction we tell ourselves is that a computer doesn't have any beliefs. It's simply a tool used to process calculations, which can then lead to advanced operations. But that's not exactly true. Um, um, there was a study of GitHub, and I can't remember who did it offhand. And it found that the coders who use GitHub, which is a popular repository for storing software snippets, it's one of the biggest libraries in the world. Uh, many designers use it every day. But there are many designers who also, in the comments, which are the rationales why they use particular codes would use racist or sexist terms to describe either what they're doing or how they did it, or even to glorify the type of work that they did. What we do in every space, whether it's technical, physical, virtual, or the like, is we bring ourselves in there. And by ourselves, it's not just our understanding of self, but the culture that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so the culture of Silicon Valley and the tech industry uh, for a few years ago was really accurately described. They called those guys over there programmers. Do you remember that term, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a really masculine uh, type frat boy environment where you move fast and break things. Uh, you try to come up with innovations. 
uh, that will change the world, but you end up with stuff like an internet connected juicer or Theranos, right? (laughs) Or you find ways to exploit existing labor structures and governmental policies that disrupt those things so that you can make a profit, but ultimately leave the world better off, worse off. So Uber, uh, Airbnb, which are laughingly called the sharing economy, Right. And so when you bring particular perspectives to the world, it's always shaped by the people who are doing the work. And so especially the the computer's capacity for virtuality and simulation, while you might make innocuous interface elements, right, you might use white space really well. You might have a responsive design. The ways that you conceive of, of your users, the people who are ultimately going to interact faithfully with this product on an everyday basis are also encoded in there as well. That's right. Right. Uh, you mentioned that there was really no Black Gizmodo or uh, Black TechCrunch. There have been a number of sites that have tried. Uh, a young lady I know, uh, Sherelle Dorsey, is currently pulling something together with a site called The Plug. Angela Benton, who's now a Silicon Valley VC, and Marcus Robinson did Black Web 2.0, which was a portal for tech reviews. And there's even the young guy, Marcus Brownlee, right, who has a huge YouTube presence. But none of those things would ever attract the same audiences as TechCrunch or Gizmodo because the faces that are fronting them are clearly brown Mm -hmm. and the ways that they express their relationships with technology are shaped by the idea that brown people have something that they can gain in addition to their own use of the technology, but that they may also gain the franchise. They may also gain economic uh, success or even lifestyle changes, right? Which is not something that a lot of white folk necessarily think of when they turn their browser on and their computer on because they have those things already. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It, it, it's the idea, it's the, the, the catechesis of the possibility of power, like of the switch of power that is, the. How do I put, how do I rephrase this? There's a, an idea online that you, the, the internet, so my studies, let me, let me frame it this way. My mm-hmm. studies, my new media studies came from post being a television producer. A lot of my friends started making web series. And so I was at the time confused and enamored by it. I was confused because I was like, why would you make TV for the web? And then I was also enamored because I was like, this is okay. This is a new platform. But I, at the time was blind to the idea that they were, Remake. They were. They were telling me that they were changing the gatekeepers. They were. <laughs> directly, they were getting. They were making content directly to the audience without having to go through the process. And they were saying, "Well, it's because we were. Um, we're the gatekeepers have kept us from being able to create in in these spaces and our stories. These these stories of these um, kind of like these nerdy white men." Uh, were sellable in a general audience space, although Big Bang Theory like is completely different of that. But that 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 ideology got in my head, and I was just like, oh, you know, you're right. There's a, a marginalization. But it was until AJ Christian, who wrote the book Open TV mm-hmm. and his work on web web studies, that he and I were writing at the exact same time, and it was he opened my eyes to the fact that you know this is this is that catechesis of white marginalization. It's you might think that you were placed that you couldn't get through those gates, but you were just taking the easy route, like the easy route of like, even just this, like it's just an easy gate to, to bust down, not thinking of the fact that marginalized people have always been in that place where you can't get past, get to the gate. Right. Like it's not even possible to get to that. And so it was a, it was a moment of my, my research that I was just, that's when I started thinking, okay, this is more of a, we have to start thinking about the fact that it isn't just for one people, one type of race or anything. And I right. think 
lot of people don't see it until something happens. And there's incidents online that happen all the time, but I, I wrote, I have fallen into the, the trap always over and over again is because the stories that float to the top, the stories, when you search for research, it's already created an exclusion. It's already created a space where you can't see people of color or second stories that like I want to get to. And I fall into the trap of reading and, and writing about them. So when I write about algorithms, there's always a story about like how an algorithm goes awry and like somebody gets hurt. And you think to yourself, yes. that's because the algorithm itself is written by a human. So right. the human has, has blind spots and gaps. And when it hurts somebody who's white, it becomes a news story. All of a sudden it's like, oh, well, that's because they, they're rich or this. But that also excludes all the different levels of people that have been affected by that exclusion forever. Like that isn't right. just new exclusion. That's just like how it is. Right. So it's fascinating to see that, like you, you mentioned Blackbird and then Black Planet, like there were there were tools, there were actual tools that engaged techno cultures that were that should or would have worked at scale. But there's also the idea that at scale means it's going to get commoditized. Like it's also like, does that culture then get adopted into the larger infrastructure itself too? Right, right. Uh, we could talk about Vine, right? Yeah. Which was heavily populated by black creators, uh, many, many of whom, you know, were doing really virtuosic type of uh, editing and film production, right? Um, and how uh, Twitter sunsetted it because it wasn't making enough money. But now if you look at TikTok, <laughs> right? Uh, you can see some of the stuff that Vine creators premiered with in just six seconds now being also redone on TikTok, on TikTok in the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, just a quick mention there. It's, if you have comments in the YouTube, if anybody's watching has a comment on YouTube, we'll get to them in about 10 minutes or so. We'll have some Q&A to, to approach. But I, to, to build off what you just mentioned with uh, TikTok, there's Taylor Lorenz wrote an article about mm -hmm. the original Renegade. You know, mm -hmm. like it was made by a young black woman. It was adopted by popular TikTokers that had already populated the space of commodifying or uh, appropriating culture directly. And it was like just an interesting... We, the credit, the credit due was immediately severed from the original story. And it was almost, it wasn't as embarrassing as it should have been. Like, it wasn't like something that was like, well, yeah, this is like a, a forever story, you know, where it keeps on happening over and over again. Right. The internet as a space allows for multiple environments to occur. But if it's not, how do I put this? If it's not environmentally appreciated, it gets immediately appropriated from somewhere else. Right. Uh, white teens doing culturally inflected dance is something that is exotic, uh, but also uh, desirable. Uh, whereas black teens doing it, that's what black people do. And that's not really worthy of any special notice until it goes viral and gets uptaken. So the idea that the young women who are doing the renegade dance were invited by the NBA and paid by the NBA to perform at the halftime game, but the originator was not, was something that the black Twitter and other spaces were really incensed by. Right, because those young women would, wouldn't have, couldn't have come up with that dance on their own, yet they were being rewarded for appropriating that young woman's particular output. Mm -hmm. And rewarded, and too, it was like this, mm -hmm. it's, the reward system's built in. Can you, can you talk a bit about Black Twitter, if you don't mind? <laughs> I can, what do you wanna know? <laughs> uh, just to explain to, the, to, the, to an audience about what, what makes it different or a, a, a section of Twitter that exists as a language or a culture inside of Twitter, just like many other uh, communities that may exist, and how it, it uh, 
Black Twitter attempts to make sure that the communication happens inside rather than something that is publicized into a part of the discourse or the political space that is constantly happening in, in Twitter at, at the moment. Okay. Um, Black Twitter uh, is in some ways a counterpublic. So if you know if you know about public spheres, Black Twitter often operates as a counterpublic because it's not composed of people who are ordinarily in the mainstream with technical or political or civic capital. They have had to create their own. Uh, my my colleagues Sarah Florini and uh, Catherine Knightsteel and I go back and forth on what type of counterpublic it is. So uh, we originally began talking about it as an enclave, which if you understand black barbershops and beauty salons as a place with a physical presence, but also as a space where people could have discussions about issues of the day, issues of themselves, political and civil issues without anybody ever really having access to it, but those inhabitants, right? That would be an enclave. Uh, Sarah is now, uh, Dr. Florini is now on, on the idea that the counterpublics are oscillating, uh, which, it's still a contained community, which occasionally comes into contact with um, issues uh, that are germane to the wider public, but for the most part uh, are still focused on black cultural spaces. And I call it a satellite, which is very similar to what uh, Sarah's is, but black Twitter even really has much less of a concern from my formulation with what goes on the mainstream. So now I got too nerdy. Black Twitter is a collection, a collectivity of voices of a number of black subgroups. Uh, there's the youth, there's the older folks, there's the plus 30s, there's the Gen Zs, there's the millennials, uh, there's the uh, travel Twitter, there's passport Twitter. Uh, my new favorite is uh, black blue check Twitter, which are people who have verified accounts. Uh, but there's also a sergeant at arms Twitter, which is the people who try to police what kind of blackness happens. So it's any number of evocations of black identity, but expressed within the narrow communicative limits that Twitter affords. Mm -hmm. But even as Twitter is narrow, it's also super expansive because it allows for the expression of emotion, really broad strokes of emotion. And I call it ritual catharsis, whether it's joy or outrage mm -hmm. or uh, pleasure or anger or sexuality, it allows for the expression of those things. And for black Twitter, those particular expressions are often colored uh, by black culture, right? Uh, and so one of the things I write about in the book is Thanksgiving for black families, uh, which is uh, which ended up being a celebration of the particularly black elements of what happens when families get together for Thanksgiving, which is a, a feast time, just like it is for other Americans. But we have certain family dynamics that we see happening for black families, certain family dynamics, certain practices, certain dishes for sure, right? Certain ways of carrying yourself when you enter in those spaces that are uniquely black cultural. Uh, and I should preface black by saying Afro-diasporic black. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, so there, but there's also black Brit Twitter. There's also uh, Nigerian Twitter, which I love because they are about uh, six hours ahead of us. So when I get up in the morning, which I call uh, around 1 p.m., uh, I still see uh, the tweets from uh, Nigerian Twitter, which is a fascinating take on the things that they are concerned with on an everyday basis, leavened with the particular different languages that they use, but they're still recognizably people who look like me. So there are multiple black Twitters. The right. one I write about most often is the one centered in the American white racial ideology context. Right. Uh, and I don't call it a community, because to community for internet uh, research has a really troubled definition. Uh, in many cases, community was understood as communities of interest because 
it was focusing on the activities of white people, but they didn't want to call it white people. They persisted in the idea that it was colorblind, right? Until you started talking about black people or women, then all of a sudden it was no longer colorblind, right? So I don't use community. I prefer collectivity. And I'm also citing the work here of Dean Freeland, Charlton McElwain, and Meredith Clark, who did a fantastic study. And they found, uh, they at their study, they looked at particularly six different groups of Black Twitter users, and then how they came together to become a counterpublic that engaged with political issues, with social injustice, and with everyday entertainment issues. How's mm -hmm. that for a long explanation? That's an excellent explanation. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, Two, two, two things I want to branch from that, because they're really two distinct uh, thoughts that came from what you just said. Um, one is the, the reference you make early in the book to the Green Book, which is the idea of like a, a safe passage or a, a usage of the American highway system, which again has whiteness built into it, mm -hmm. but offered the, the way of leisure, safety, and um, movement for black people that was able to give black folk the op opportunity to use America without the dangers that come inherently with it. Okay. Uh, is black Twitter like part of that? Like is black Twitter like a guidebook in that way? Or is it, is, does it offer less of a political stance or is it more of a communication platform in your opinion? So I think there are very deep parallels between um, the green book and black Twitter uh, because the green book was not perceived issued as a political document. It was a politics of the everyday. So navigating uh, spaces that were bounded by US highways and state roads, right? Uh, and those spaces often came with a high level of danger, right? From people who didn't want you in their town, the sundown towns, or people who were emboldened by the laxity of, of uh, policing and, and stuff in the South to feel comfortable pulling cars off the road and killing people, right? So the, the Green Book provided an informational network to allow people to access spaces that will allow them allow black travelers to either rest and relax themselves, uh, fill up their cars with gas and get food, or even vacation spots, uh, like the black boardwalks in Atlantic City in Florida, or the vacation space, spaces in the Poconos on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where Detroit's auto workers used to go uh, to relax on their vacation time, right? And so there are deep parallels in that you have to have a life in order to have a political presence, right? And everything cannot be political, uh, big P political, where you're trying to get people to the polls because those moments come uh, infrequently, scheduled, but infrequently. And in between those times, you still have to live. So I argue for Black Twitter in that same way. Like, it's the space where political identity can grow based on an understanding of common goals of shared resources and of having to exist in a particular particular context. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't obviously didn't want to make any sarcastic jokes because it was like, <laughs> because it's like I was almost like oh, I'm glad glad that time has passed. But it's there's it's it's not it's never ending. Just I was just thinking we Josh and I were talking beforehand about Ahmed Arbery and the horrific video and how the black body in physical space is part of a carceral system. Like it's just. It's, it is that in America, and especially in the South. And the Green Book offered a way of making sure that it was possible to, to exist, just to exist, you know? And I, I actually, I don't want to dwell on that. I actually want to dwell on another point you made about joy. Like I, I want, I think that's an interesting concept that I think one of the things we found a uh, digital void on is the idea of mil militant joyfulness, you know, like trying to like 
think about how we could start being friends militantly, like how we could start connecting that way too. And like, what is, what do you, when you, can you explain joy from the point of view of your research? Um, so it's not necessarily joy as if we find everything funny. Although I will say black, black Twitter is really good at dark humor. No pun intended. Right. Uh, Kashawn Thompson uh, came up with a phrase a few years back called black girl magic. Uh, and it was co-opted really quickly uh, because a lot of folk wanted to use it to refer to black excellence, right? Uh, where they wanted to celebrate people who won awards like Lupita Nyong'o or people who graduated from college and uh, particularly young, young women of color who made it through college. They wanted to celebrate those respectable accomplishments. But Kashan's definition, I'm sorry, Mrs. Thompson's definition was much more uh, pungent and, and satisfying to me because she referred to young people who had very little in the way of resources, yet managed to make fantastic creations. Uh, so like the beautiful geometry of cornrows uh, done in a kitchen with you know a hot comb on a burner, right? Or the capacity to make a meal that incorporates seafood, but the seafood is not an $18 chunk of Pacific coho salmon, it's a can of Jack mackerel, right? right? And, and so making a, uh, a dollar out of 15 cents uh, being able to conduct the kind of alchemy, the kind of magic that transforms uh, the scraps that we get from food culture, so chitlins or greens, things which were discarded, we make them into delicacies and things that are in high demand. Like look at kale, right? <laughs> yeah, the transformation of kale is like it's a hipster story of appropriation. I mean, it's it's really fantastic. It's really fan it's really amazing to watch, but you could, I mean, and it's not just black people do that. Like the story of quinoa is also an amazing one, right? Uh, and other things as well. But particularly, uh, I, I love Mrs. Thompson's definition because she talks about some of the ways that I understood when I grew up as a, as a child of, you know, not necessarily great means in Louisiana. We found joy, even though in many ways we understood we didn't have everything. We found spaces to build out joy. And the book I call that living in the post present. Like mm -hmm. understanding that there is a moment after this one, but enjoying this one as well, yeah. right? Uh, and so that's important to me. I also refer to Afro-optimism uh, and uh, particularly the works of Fred Moten. And he says, black joy is not celebration. It, more, it's just a celebration of black thought. That is life itself. And I really love the way he defined that, right? Because it gives me more room within which to talk about the varying emotions and affect that black people uh, engage upon that in some ways ends up as being joyful, but in all ways ends up as recognizing the humanity of black folks, something which has not been offered to us or uh, delivered to us in the American racial context. Mm -hmm. Excellent, thank you. We have uh, some questions that are coming in. Leon Samuels asks, as an educator contending with remote learning, how do we extend this utility to students in some communities of color that have less access to the internet and devices? So, I came into this uh, field of study uh, from a literacy and composition program. So I was a writing tutor, right? And one of the things I quickly understood as a writing tutor is that the ways that we teach students how to appreciate literature often revolves around a canon of old white men. So every, every medium, every information medium we encounter has often been prejudiced by with inherent bias, right? Who can be represented? Whose feelings are taken into account? What props do they use in order to achieve enlightenment or transcendence? So like many, many of the roles Will Smith has played, where he's the magical Negro that helps a white man get his groove back or learn how to date or learn how to golf or, I mean, we could just go on, right? <laughs> right. 
uh, black cool, right? Uh, and so many, every, every communicative meeting has its inherent bias. What I love about the internet, particularly uh, Twitter, yes, but the internet overall, is that it also affords young black folk the tools to uh, build themselves, represent themselves in these virtual environments. So if you look at the videos on TikTok, from the, some of the ones from young black creators, the inventiveness, there's a, a group of kids, I think they're from Ghana, right? And they have a specific name, but they do shot for shot recreations of popular music videos with high budgets using only the things they have around them. Right. And it's beautifully done. Like their timing is perfect. Their cuts are perfect. Their staging and their environments are perfect. And it's that type of being able to use these tools to build themselves out in this ways, which is a great starting point, not an ending point. Right. It's not necessarily guaranteeing them a job. God willing, it might. Right. But it does give them the capacity, the technical expertise with these tools that can translate into other expertises as they get older and enter into society. Many of the, the young folk who started with Black Planet in 1999, because Black Planet allowed you to do HTML coding. So the interfaces would look like MySpace pages, the sparkly cursors, the, the image backgrounds, the auto-playing music, and many young people, women particularly, made a lot of money from providing those type of production tools to people who wanted to have dope Black Planet pages. Many wow. of those women are now Twitter engineers, or Facebook engineers and the like, because that was a jumping off point for them to get those particular tools, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do something people are entertained by or find joy in, they can later purpose that to, to get some economic capacity out of it. But that, the economic capacity should not be the only grounds upon which you introduce them to mm -hmm. it. Excellent, thank you. Kaylee asks, how do you think media can tell stories that describe and represent the black experience in the digital age? Do you think more stories have emerged after the success of Black Panther? Oh, there were stories out long before Black Panther. Uh, you mentioned AJ Christian. Amar actually has his own Black web series network featuring the experiences of uh, queer folk of color, right? And uh, if you think about Issa Rae with uh, Insecure, Insecure was originally a web series called Awkward Black Girl. There are many, many, many more series like that on uh, YouTube itself, but also on Vimeo. And now that Quibi is coming up as a platform, they're looking for even more Black creators. So mainstream media may never tell those stories. Uh, or if they tell those stories, they'll tell those stories in certain circumscribed ways. So people have been complaining about uh, Blackish, Mixedish, and Black AF, uh, the Kenya Barris shows, because they feel it only presents a certain view of uh, blackness that is pal palatable to white folks. But there are so many other venues that people can explore where the internet has encouraged uh, black folk to represent themselves. So one of the biggest selling categories on Amazon, for example, which allows self-publishing, you can write the book and then Amazon has tools where you can make it look like a book and then sell it. Our black street romance authors, those women are making, and men, are making a lot of money simply talking about romance from a black perspective. And sometimes it's prosaic, sometimes it's hood, but it's always featuring the perspectives of Black people in Black situations. And so there are multiple venues for Black creators to use the media opportunities and tools that we have to represent ourselves. Waiting on the mainstream is not something that will ever be profitable for us. Yeah. Yeah, that was the, that was like my, that was my switch in my brain is when I realized like that all of, and even to this day with political trolls and like the, the feeling of like victimization among uh, young reactionary white men is like that it's it's always been a privilege to be there in the first like the first place there's no that's never been 
that's not the gate. Like the mainstream or like the commercial market is the gate. Like there's just, mm -hmm. it's the advertisers. I mean, we could extrapolate that to the just top of, top of capitalism if we want to. Right. But we, we, it's like that's, or the US or just Western culture in general. So it's, it is interesting that like those series I think have to be sought out. And that's usually one of my takeaways at the end of all semesters. I'm always like, you have to seek this. It's not something that, it, it isn't something that's given, but that's the, that's the best part about critical analysis or even just cultural studies in general is that you don't just stick to what's given to you. You have to make sure you look for other stories that are being told, things that aren't type, constantly showing the horror, like things that, like, I feel like a lot of the series that end up on TV are always like, look what happened, look at this. And then occasionally you get like a mainstream moment, but it's usually based on a monomyth. You know, it's like the same, the same, you know? And so it is, I like uh, Amar's work at, on open TV and all the series. And it, and I do uh, I love Issa Rae's jump from Diaries of a Black Girl to Insecure. I think that's fantastic, and I think she's getting renewed for a season that's coming out very soon, which is great. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just Issa Rae. I mean, the Black Lady Sketch Show, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Random Acts of Flyness, which was amazing. Uh, Netflix picked up the Astro the Astronomers Club, which from the name you wouldn't know, it's a black comedy improvisation troupe. Oh. Right? So there are definitely things out there, but like you point out, you have to look for it and you have to understand, and this is where the young man's question about implicit bias comes up, inherent bias, that the the search engine is not going to direct you to it right off top, right? Sure. Because it, it's not trained to look for things and value things that black content creators make. Yeah. Next question is, Leonis, now that the internet is a utility for all of society, or in, in theory, how do we most effectively teach students of all races using the tool while accounting for its inherent bias? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so students of all races are, okay, how best do I say that? Um, I have a number, like my son uh, has a K, uh, a K through 12 uh, education degree. And one of the things I'm most aware of for K through 12 education is that in many ways they are not given the room to discuss complicated issues of race in their in their classrooms. Many of them are still forced to teach to the test, or if they do do innovative curricula, many of them do, they're doing it on their own expense. And it's not something that necessarily can be re replicated system-wide. So if your kid is lucky, they'll get an outstanding teacher, but many school systems altogether don't necessarily value uh, the the importance of discussing how critical understandings of race are to understanding the United States of America, right? The idea that Texas is just now uh, certified that they can teach African-American studies in the state in 2019, <laughs> right, is, is a really damning indictment uh, because actually where Texas goes is where the textbooks for the entire United States goes. They have an overwhelming power over what students around the country teach because they buy so many books. Right, and so it, it says a lot about what K through 12 students are exposed to. I can speak to um, from a higher ed perspective. Um, in many cases in higher ed, particularly at the flagship schools and the elite schools, you won't get a lot of students of color in your classroom. And so my uh, teaching the stuff that I write about necessarily revolves for my students starting from gender, right? Because they can understand gender in many ways, much more clear, clearly than they can understand how race affects it. And that has its failings, but it becomes effective. Starting from issues of power, which is where feminism comes into play, although many of your college students will say they're not feminists, 
right? So it's starting from issues of power, starting with gender, which is something they can grasp immediately, is the best way to get students to understand. From that perspective, when you start looking at differential representations and structures, and you transpose that onto technology like social media, uh, the internet and digital stuff, then they'll begin to understand uh, how to represent not only the black experience, but the indigenous experience, the Latinx experience, the black, uh, the Middle Eastern, Arab, South Indian, uh, East Indian, uh, you know, all these different perspectives that come across in these various spaces. One of the, uh, some of my students have pointed out that India has a really vibrant and internet culture of its own. And the people who are here who are second, first, sec second and third generation people of Indian descent also have their own communities here that discuss issues that go on. Desi Twitter, Desi Facebook, Facebook groups and the like, they all have their own cultures. And so white students will never have access to all those things, but as long as they're made aware of that their own whiteness creates similar spaces, it's always a start. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I have a civic engagement course where in order to start after going through the, the, the First Amendment for literally weeks at a time, um, we start doing what I call covert feminism. It's to talk about gender without saying the word. So it's like, yes. it, we start doing it. And once you break the structure, I found that it's very much like a, a method of once, once there's that little bit of openness, that mm -hmm. the stories start to switch. And then because the, the, the current temperament of the internet is so heavily vitriolic, it's like, mm -hmm. it's a balance. It's a dance, uh, especially like in de depending on what school you are, or what district you're from. But once you start getting people to ask questions back, mm -hmm. you can start answering them because that's all it is, is ask, it's creating the gap for the question. That's oftentimes what I find is the best way to start encouraging or incorporating a lot of the work because otherwise, I mean, there's, there's a, a, I mean, we have academic freedom in higher ed, but it's not the same in K-12, you know? So it's, it is very much like a, a different way of approaching subjects of deeper stories. For me, because just my background in internet studies and new media, uh, the passion is to always look at these technologies as beyond what they exist as. And it's to, right. to understand like the, the translation of knowing the wires, the cables, the machines, the, mm -hmm. the user interface, it was all distinctly monocultural from a white perspective. And that's right. something that because the privilege of white is to never think about it is to not, when you don't think about race, it doesn't look like anything. So right. it's when, when we, start seeing that all of these things were one way or another, it's a start to encourage the, the, the uh, approach or the critical uh, discourse or even the pushback, like the resistance to knowing that it's singular in, in a mindset. And once that happens, I think that's, if any, like you, you said with like Black Planet or any of the, the HTML coders from the late nineties, like that's the entry point. Like that to me is like the first step to knowing that there's a, a way of like interacting with uh, the physical structures or once and always will be because they've been pre-built, you know, we can always now start breaking them down at least, you know, start working them from a different perspective. That's, okay. you're, you're, again, I, like, I hate to keep pushing on your book, but that's what I do is that it really does. It's a, it's a very well-paced approach to that as well. Thank you. I would like to add, because I, love, I want that syllabus, um, but I, I uh, especially over the last five years, 
with the ascension of multiple heavily populated platforms that millennials and well, Gen Z, because we're not getting the millennials. They're like 20 years old at this point, right? But over the last five years is that because they see the environments that they exist in as being multicultural, they're like, oh, there are black people on my feed. There are Asian people on my feed. So why do I need to know about race? My feed is already multicultural. And so I tend to start really theory heavy in every class. Like we're doing critical race theory to understand the social construction of whiteness and how uh, particularly in the American context, blackness, uh, Asian identity, Latino identity are all structured on their relationship to whiteness, right? And by doing that without focusing on the tools first, it gives them the equipment to recognize when those things happen across various tools, as opposed to saying, let's just look at how this tool works. They get too caught up in the instrumental approach. They know how to, you know, build fences. They know how to uh, change their name. They have to do all these technical things, but they never really think about the cultural element. So I want to steal your approach. And I also, for that question that asked, if you can teach them critical race theory or like Josh says, hidden, I mean, like, uh, uh, Jamie says hidden feminine, covert feminism, that's a great way to get them started to recognize power first and yeah. then look at the tools to see how that power is enacted. Uh, one last question for you. Uh, what are you working on next? Where's your research going? Uh, I'm taking a break because I just got tenure. Uh, oh, I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not writing anything for the next year. You hear that, people? I owe chapters and stuff to. I'm not writing anything. Now, uh, <laughs> they to celebrate. <laughs> there's well, I mean, how do you celebrate now, right? Oh, um, good question. <laughs> so before the virus, I wanted to get back to video games. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, an article that I love talking about the re black representation and. Uh, games, uh, and there are other games I want to investigate, but I also want to start building this workout that I started with critical technocultural discourse analysis to analyze whiteness, right? My stuff white people like article has been sitting in my drafts for eight years now, uh, since uh, longer, since Obama got elected. That's when that post went up, right? And so I need to really get back to that because I think there's something important to talk about, not just with 45 and his use of Twitter, but, you know, uh, I just recently was featured, uh, I was interviewed for an article on Karens, right? And so, <laughs> right? And so the ways that whiteness has managed to manifest itself through grievance and uh, uh, fragility and the like um, is really, I think, important to write about. Not necessarily, again, not because of the instrumental ways of doing it, but the ways that whiteness manages to configure itself to be seen and represent it overwhelmingly in, in social media spaces. That's the thing I would love to tackle next. Excellent, thank you. Uh, you thank you for being here. Do you have anything you want to plug or ask us to follow, we'll put in the show notes or anything? Uh, uh, I was looking at the questions in the chat and thank you for the people who submitted questions. Just that distributed blackness, you don't have to buy it. Uh, although my child's tuition would love it if you did. It's also available open access through NYU Press. And so if you can't afford it, but I still want you to read it. So please feel free to take advantage of the open access version. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here and taking the time. To oh, no. Thank you for inviting me. This was great. You have awesome questions and they made me work. And I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Digital Void, including our upcoming salons, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to visit us at digitalvoid.media. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com to let us know about collaborations, sponsorships, and 
feedback.